Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. So before we dive into Revelation 6, 5 through 6, I thought because we do have a lot of new people visiting the church, a lot of new people online, I thought I'd go ahead and just do a quick intro to kind of the book of Revelation just to give you a heads up on where we've been and where we're going in this study so if you remember, Revelation's the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing. And it's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. This is the only book of the entire Bible that has a special anointing promised on it, a special blessing on the book. And I'm totally convinced that blessing is a couple of reasons, for a couple of reasons. Number one, if it's studied correctly, it will take you literally into every other book of the Bible. And so you will know God's word, the entire counsel of God's word, when you study this book the right way. It's also a blessing because it's the only book that chronicles every promise in the Old Testament of Jesus ruling and reigning eventually on earth. And for every prophecy of his arrival the first time to die as a suffering servant, there are at least eight of him ruling and reigning on earth. And this is the only book of the Bible that chronicles it in detail. It's hinted at, and we can learn a lot through a lot of the Old Testament books about that time, but this book specifically, the Lord anointed to unpack that and what it really means it's also the only book of the Bible that gives you an outline, a divine outline. It's in verse 19 of chapter 1. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, or metatata in the Greek. And it, this outline, this divine outline, the things which you saw, by this point, the Holy Spirit had unveiled who Jesus is to John in chapter 1. Who is he really? And that's literally what the name of the book means. Revelation in the Greek is apocalypse. You know, we have such a negative connotation with the word apocalypse in our culture, but it literally just means the unveiling of. And it's the unveiling of who is Jesus. Now, the negative connotation in our culture for the word apocalypse is because the world is terrified of who he really is, which is judge and king. He's already died and suffered as a servant for all of us, but now he is going to come back to rule and to reign and to judge in righteousness. And, the, and frankly, the world is terrified of that. So they, they build this negative connotation with the word apocalypse. But the things which you have seen, so John by this point had seen the unveiling of Jesus, and in chapter 1 there were 24 identifying characteristics of who Jesus is. And he uses one of those in each of the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And so literally the church is making up the body of Christ. And so chapters 2 and 3 are the second part of the outline, the things which are. Okay, the things which are. Those are the seven churches that Jesus penned to us today. And in fact, those two chapters are the most important chapters 
of the entire book for us as the church. And they lay out the entire church history in advance. And the things which are after the church. So that starts in chapter 4, verse 1. And from there on, it's what happens after the church age is closed. And that's where we are. So we were in the throne room in chapters 4 and 5. And then starting in chapter 6, the only one that's worthy came forward and took the scroll. And we're right here at the third seal of him unlocking a sealed indictment on the world, but it's also a title deed to the earth. What does it mean to reclaim what he rightfully paid for? And so it's also the only book of the Bible that details explicitly the future. And you see that back in verse 3, the words of this prophecy as Jesus declared it to be. So this book is special, and it it may take us a while to get all the way through it. Uh, We're in chapter 6. We're doing two verses today, 5 and 6. So just sit tight. This is going to be a really interesting study, I think, of the black horse today. Okay, we're going through these three sets of seven judgments. And when you study them closely, they grow exponentially as you go through the unlocking. And so we have these seven seals on the scroll that Jesus is going through right now. When we get to the seventh seal, it unlocks the seven trumpets. And then through those, the seventh trumpet will unlock the seven bowls or vials in the King James. And even the structure of the book is deliberate because between number six and seven of all three, there's a break, a kind of a pause where God takes the opportunity to tell you something else that's going on. And between the seals, six and seven, it's one chapter, it's chapter seven. In the trumpets, it's actually four chapters, 10 through 14. And in the bowls, it's one verse where Jesus himself is speaking in chapter 16, verse 15. And when you study this, you know, as a math guy, you can notice a logarithmic scale as it's going up. It's a fourth of this and then a third of that, and then it just continues to exponentially get worse. Okay, so our two verses for today, verses 5 and 6, the black horse. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hands. So when you see this, the balances meaning a, an improportionate weight, okay? A, a scale was always used in transactions in the Old Testament. And that's why God had so many indictments on people that used what he would call unjust weights. So you would think, for example a lead coin or a silver coin or something had a certain weight, but they would put something in the middle of it you couldn't see that weighed more. So actually their money, you were were getting less in your transactions. So they would cheat people that way. So the pair of balances here. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou not hurt not the oil and the wine. So a black horse, black is always associated with famine in the Bible throughout the entire Bible. When you go all the way back to the very beginning, it's always associated with famines. And we see this, here's a couple examples, in Lamentations 4, verses 4 through 8. The tongue of the suckling child cleaveth to the roof of his mouth for thirst. In other words, there's nothing to drink. We're out of water. The young children ask bread, and no man breaketh it unto them. They that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embrace dunghills. In other words, 
the people that really lived lavishly are brought down low because of this famine. For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment. You know, famines, when you study famines throughout history, they last a long time, and it's terrible. You can read about them in Jeremiah a lot where they were besieged by Nebuchadnezzar. So in ancient times, what they would do when they wanted to take over a kingdom is you would just siege it. So you'd create a siege. You would surround the city and lock off everything from coming in and out. And you would just starve them to death, basically, is what they did. That was a tactic that the Romans used, the Babylonians used, Nebuchadnezzar used it in Jeremiah. Okay, so this punishment is greater than being thrown, thrown, overthrown in a moment. You know, in a moment like Sodom, it's over. With a famine, it lasts a long time. Okay, and no hand stayed on her. Her Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. Their visage is blacker than a coal. So here you have the connection between famine and the color black early on in the Bible. They are not known in the streets. Their skin cleaveth to their bones. It is withered. It has become like a stick. You see this also in the next chapter of Lamentations, chapter 5, verse 10. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Okay, so there's a connection again. Jeremiah 14, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languisheth. They are black unto the ground, and they cry. The cry of Jerusalem has gone up. And when you study the whole book of Jeremiah, a lot of it is about the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar, really the judgment of God on Nebuchadnezzar, through Nebuchadnezzar on the people of Israel in Jerusalem. So this whole concept of black being associated with famine, it goes all the way back in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Okay, here we have scarcity of food due to hyperinflation, is what we see. So look at what he's saying, a pair of balances in, the, in his hand, eating bread by weight is always an expression of scarcity and famine. So when the Jews would eat bread by weight, it meant they were having to weigh out and ration some goods or a portion for the day. So it was not an abundance. You didn't, if you had to weigh it, it meant you didn't have enough for everyone and everyone had to get a certain ration. So this, this concept of balances weighing out to get wheat and barley, it's a, it's a form of scarcity and famine. You see this in Leviticus 26. And when I have broken the staff of your bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall deliver you your bread again by weight, and ye shall eat and not be satisfied. Okay, so it's this whole concept of eating bread by weight. You're going to eat this small, this small ration, this small portion, but you're not going to be satisfied for it. Okay, and so then look at what it says in verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts. So who is this voice in the midst. Well, you go back a chapter, a chapter 5, in verse 6, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And so the voice in the midst is literally Jesus. Remember, he's the one that comes forward. The whole throne room event where they're looking for a man that was worthy to take the scroll in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And finally, out of the midst walks one as a lamb that had been slain. So it's Jesus coming forward. 
and he is the one giving command like we talk about every week. He's in control right now. He has authority. He's commanding this to unfold. And so the voice out of the midst, it's Jesus saying, and he says, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And so you have this voice out of the midst giving command of what to do. Okay, the word measure here in the, in the Greek, it appears to be about two pints is the volume of what it's used for from a volumetric standpoint. And you can see this when you go back and you study some Greek authors, Homer and Herodotus. This was the daily provision as consumed by each soldier in the army of Xerxes. And so it was a very small amount volumetrically. So if you study wars and things like that in the ancient times, they were not well fed. Soldiers had rations. They had very little to eat during their daily provision. And so this is something that would connect with the people of this age that John was, really the Holy Spirit through John was penning this letter. It's a very small amount. It's about two pints. So you, you essentially have one partial day's ration for one full day's work. You know, it'd be like today if we went and worked I can't remember what the, they're trying to get the minimum wage up, but if you worked a full day's wage and you could only go buy a quarter of a loaf of bread, you know, at the end of the day, just think about that as a comparison. Okay, a penny here. The word penny is a denarian, and it's associated with a day's wage. So in Matthew 20, and when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And so that penny, it's the same word there, denarian. In Matthew 20, a few verses later, and when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny or a denarian. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And that whole parable of what the Lord's working through there is he, he pays his laborers a wage, and it's funny because it, when you study that, the people that were hired early in the day are upset because they worked all day, but the people hired at the end of the day get the same wage that they did. And it's kind of a relation to our inheritance and rewards in heaven. When you come to Jesus, that's when that clock starts. You know, it doesn't matter if you came when you were six or you came when you were 86. It's a matter of what did you do with it once you became saved. And Jesus is saying here, hey, don't worry about what I pay those that knew me from a very early age. Worry about what you did with it once you became saved. That's the, the bottom line kind of through that parable. So wheat versus barley. You know, it's interesting. I, I, don't, I did not grow up on a farm. I don't have any background in agriculture. I know my family were farmers. My grandpa was when he was very young, but I learned nothing about farming at all. So I was just kind of doing a little bit of research on wheat versus barley. What is it used for? Why would the Lord make this comparison here? Uh, barley is harvested in warmer seasons, and wheat really thrives in cooler climates, so it's planted kind of at the start of winter. And wheat has a weaker taste, and barley a much stronger, more potent taste. Barley can be cooked as rice right when you harvest it, but wheat has to be milled, and so more work has to be done on wheat for it to be something use, useful. So it really implies a three-to-one price differential for barley over wheat. When you see this, a measure for wheat and three measures for barley. 
Okay, so barley being more expensive because you can use it right away, whereas wheat being less expensive because, well, you got to do something with it. And really, I, the, I think the point the Lord's making here is it's an entire season that's covered under this famine. So you have spring to winter. So it's not just a, a quick one-day famine or one-month famine. This is going to go on for a while when they get to this point in Revelation but it really implies hyperinflation scenario with prices more than 10 times above normal. That's, that's what you're really going to see as we go throughout this a little bit more. So the luxury items are not hurt in all of this, the oil and the wine. And oil and wine seem to be used by God throughout the Bible. Uh, bread and wine is introduced by Melchizedek in Genesis when he comes to Abraham after the battle of the kings. That whole theme is carried throughout the Bible. Bread and wine is with Joseph in the prison when Pharaoh throws him in prison. Then you get all the way into the New Testament, and you have bread and wine with Jesus. And so wine is, is used throughout the Bible as celebratory for God's people. And God is saying, don't hurt that here. Oil is used for anointing. So anointing people. Priests were anointed by oil. Remember before Jesus died, they anointed his entire head with that bottle of oil. And Judas and some of the the other people were upset. We could have sold that for a lot. And Jesus says, you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have with me always. Anointing oil is always used for special purposes, ceremonial purposes in God's word. So part of it here, I think, is he's saying the work of God's people will continue, hurt that not. But it's also kind of saying the luxuries will continue. And that's one thing you see a lot when you study famines throughout history is people that have massive amounts of wealth or access to luxuries are not hurt during that time. And that could be a a hint here also that people that are enjoying or setting up this one world dictatorship are continuing to do so during this time. Okay, most modern famines have been caused by the crippling of economic systems. And what I want to do is kind of go through and look at over the last hundred years some recent famines that happened around the globe, just to give you an idea of what this may look like. Now, this will be much worse during the seven-year tribulation, but to get an idea of what a famine due to hyperinflation is really like, Let's look at what has happened over the last hundred years. You know, it appears to be exactly what's going on here when Jesus unseals the black horse is the crippling of an economic system. Now, this could be the start of what ushers in the mark of the beast in Revelation 13 when we get down that road further. But something dramatic has to happen in order for the world to take this mark in order to buy, sell, and trade. But when you look back over the 20th century, it's really the policies of governments and monetary instability that have wrecked economies. And it's interesting, when you study this, the definition of inflation has been changed to cover this up, which I, found, I just found this fascinating. So if you look at today's definition of inflation, it's a process in which the average level of prices increases at a substantial rate over a considerable period of time. In short, more money is required to buy a given amount of goods and services. And indeed, that's true. But when you go back and you look in 1957 in Webster's Dictionary, they really defined why those prices increased. An increase in the amount of currency in circulation resulting 
in a relatively sharp and sudden fall in its value and rise in prices. And so they, the definitions even changed over the last 60 years because they're covering up that the, really the root of inflation is due to an increase in the amount of currency in circulation. Okay, so that should sound really familiar over the last 14 months to all of us in the United States uh, as we've just been printing money left and right. So it's, it's amazing how they've even changed the definition so you're, you're less aware of it. Now, people in the 50s would have been very aware of this because they had family members or maybe the, they themselves lived through the Great Depression, any of those things. Uh, so inflation, it's really a hidden theft of citizens when you think about it. And it's one of those things, if you assumed a 3% inflation per year, it not only applies to your future earnings, but it applies to all money left over from the past. And so your money left over is devalued every year at whatever that inflation rate is, right? So a dollar you earned last year, if you had a 3% inflation, is only worth 97 cents now. And if that happened again, it would only be worth 94 cents, and so on and so on it goes. In fact, when you look at this, if you worked 25 years and you assumed 3% per year, after 25 years, if you had a dollar you earned 25 years ago, it's only worth 48 cents. Now, hopefully you have some growth, right? If you invested it, if you did something, you earned something. But it just shows you how inflation works, that it compounds very quickly, and it devalues money very, very quickly. And I don't know about you all, but, you know, just going to the store today or this past week, prices of stuff, it's going up. You know, bread is more expensive, milk is more expensive, gas is more expensive. And this devalues your money, the dollars you earn, but not by taxes, right? It's kind of a hidden, it's a hidden tax, so to speak, because if you can print more money, then you get more out of it from the citizens, which is, it's kind of insidious. But hopefully that devaluation is offset with growth and investing, but every year that occurs. And so you can just see how quickly through the life of your earnings, how it happens. So hyperinflation over the last hundred years, we have not experienced this in the United States in my lifetime, most of us in your lifetime. But when you look at this, this has happened all over the world over the last two, 100 years. You know, you go back to 1921 in Poland, food prices doubled every 19 days. When you go back in Germany, and we're going to look at the Germany example in a little more detail, 1923, food prices doubled every three to four days. In Greece, they doubled in every four days in 1944. In 1946 in Hungary, food prices doubled every 15 hours. In 1982, Mexico inflation hit 10,000%, driving up food 100 times in 12 months. In 1989 in Argentina, the peso was devalued three times, driving food prices up over 3,000% in a single year. In Brazil, 1994, getting a little more modern, inflation raged at over 2,000% per year, making food more than 20 times more expensive. That same year in Yugoslavia, food prices doubled every 34 hours. So, and then in, Zab in Zimbabwe in 2008, they doubled every single day. Every 24 hours, their food prices were doubling. Okay, in Germany, this is one of the most documented periods of inflation in human history. It was right around World War I. Uh, there was a lot of monetary policy that caused this to happen in Germany. And it was a time when an average German carried literally billions of marks in their pockets but could still buy nothing. 
That's how bad it got. Food prices doubled about every 49 hours in the end. When you study this, they printed to fund and, and help out the war effort and to fund really the debt they took on from the war, they printed about 4 trillion marks, which I just found that interesting because that's about the amount that we've printed just in the U.S. over the last, well, 14 months or so. Uh, prices ran out of control. A loaf of bread, which cost 250 marks in January of 23, had risen to 200 billion marks by November of 23. So you had in a short 10-month window from 250 to 200 billion for a single loaf of bread in, in less than one calendar year. So a week's pension would not even buy a cup of coffee. You could do nothing with your money in Germany during these years. And the mark was free falling and its value decreasing by the minute. Restaurants literally stopped printing menus because by the time the food arrived, the price had gone up. So if they printed a menu and they gave it to you at the table, it was, the price was already out of date. And I found a story of one guy who drank his first cup of coffee and paid 5,000 marks. And when he went to go buy the second cup of coffee, it cost 9,000 marks. It was that quick. That their, that their dollars or their marks, their currency was being devalued. And by autumn of 23, it cost more to print a note than the note was worth overall. Okay, here you can see in 1922, this is what one German mark looked like. And then in 1923 in September, they were printing bills with a 50 million mark currency on them. And these are the pictures of them. And there are stories of people who literally, they had a business... They sold the business, and by the time, and when they sold it, the dollar or the mark value of it was enough for them to retire on and live comfortably. But by the time the paperwork finished and they made the transaction, they didn't even have enough to buy a loaf of bread. It was that hyper. The hyperinflation was running out of control. And so they had nothing left. Uh, some of you may have seen this in 2017 in Venezuela, if you paid attention in the news during this time, there were, you saw the bread lines, you saw people waiting at ATMs. Uh, Venezuela just collapsed under its own weight because the, they just were printing money. They just printed so much of it that it became utterly worthless. And the cash crunch is so acute that ATMs, this is an article from The Guardian in 2017. The cash crunch is so acute that ATMs now provide a daily limit of 10000 Boulevards, enough to buy just a few cups of coffee. And so if you look up these articles, people would have to wait in line at an ATM, max out what they could take out of it, and then go wait in another line, and wait in another line, and wait in another line, just to go try to buy something for their children that day. And it, it was a, basically the banks were running out of money. They had no, they had no notes to print at all. Okay, black market money changers charged commissions of up to 20% to score paper money for small business people who pay their workers in cash. And banks are running out of bank notes. Sometimes bank tellers will only pay you half your pension and suggest that you come back later for the rest. Who was, this is said someone who is waiting in the line out of a state-run bank in Caracas. Although many nations are moving away from paper money in favor of electronic payments for convenience and to reduce street crime, Critics contend that Venezuela is inadvertently turning into a cashless society thanks to economic blunders by President 
I'm going to totally mess up his name, socialist government. Out-of-control state spending, government currency controls, and other policies have led to what many describe as hyperinflation. This was just four years ago, as well as the collapse of the Bolivar, Bolivar, which now trades at about 107000 to the pound on the black market. Now there's not enough cash in circulation to keep up with soaring prices, and a senior economist in Caracas think tank says there are about 13 billion banknotes in circulation in Venezuela, but about half of these are 100 notes, each worth a small fraction of one penny. So the central bank introduced higher denomination bills, including a 100,000 note, but these new banknotes are printed in Europe, and the government, which is dealing with falling production of oil, its main export, and massive foreign debt, lacks the money to import enough of them to meet demand. Prices are doubling around every two months, so at this rate of price increases, you can't keep up with inflation even if you start importing bills. And this, was, this happened just four years ago in Venezuela, and it, the pictures were awful if you look back and see that. But the thing that's so interesting about this is that these crises over the last 100 years are entirely man-made. You know, it's the nation's leaders made them by creating unbacked paper money in mass quantities that is basically becomes so worthless because there's enough of it in circulation that you can't do anything with it. And when you look at the United States, you know, we're in a predicament. We're, we're literally doing the same thing. Now, there are some differences. Uh, we, we have a, we're the world's largest economy, so we have a lot of weight behind our currency. But just look at the upper left chart there. This is how the debt has gone over the last few years. Just look at how it's jumped up over the last few years. We're at, if you look at the national debt clock, which is the upper right, yesterday it was $28.2 trillion. Uh, the table from USA Today says $27 trillion. It's, it's a lot of money, needless to say. And the word trillion, it's, it's really hard to get a grasp on, so we're going to look at that in a second. But the lower right-hand chart shows the deficits. So the red bars going down is how much of a deficit we ran that particular year. The dashed line is where the gold standard stopped, where the money was not backed by gold any longer. And so our money is just, it's just printed. Its value is intrinsic in itself right now. It's not backed by anything, so to speak. But the deficit spending hasn't stopped, and it's just ramping out of control. Uh, some estimates of the real national debt approach about $200 trillion uh, because the debt of $27, 28000000000000 trillion is what we owe others. But when you account Social Security, Medicare, social programs that are unfunded, a lot of estimates by Bloomberg and Fortune and USA Today call it around $200 trillion because we have obligations to our citizens that are unfunded. And so that is a hard number to wrap your head around. It's a really hard number, and it's hard. To, you, you kind of don't understand what a trillion really means. It's a modern-day term that we seem to just throw around out there, right? You hear, oh, they've passed another $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. Oh, cool. Okay, $1.9 trillion. That's, that's all right, right? <laughs> that doesn't sound too bad. Well, we have 200-plus of those, <laughs> and it's almost an incomprehensible value when you really think about it. You know, if, if I borrowed money, if we borrowed money from someone and we said, okay, I'm going to pay you what I borrowed 
$1 every second until it's paid back. Every second. And we borrowed a million dollars. That's roughly 11 days. You can kind of wrap your head around that. You know, okay, I'll get my million dollars back in 11 days. Well, if I said, if I borrowed a billion dollars and I'm going to pay you back in a billion seconds, look at how it goes up exponentially, 31 years. So you jump from 11 days to 31 years if you paid a dollar every second. Well, if you said, okay, I'm going to pay you in a trillion seconds, okay, you're going to pay someone back in 31,000 years. That's just look at how exponentially it goes up. Just it kind of get, it gets some weight behind that value of wow, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a big, big value. And I know all of you in here are thinking when we get to the millennium that the dollar will be the currency of choice. But I'm here to break the news to you. It probably will not be the currency of choice. <laughs> so as soon as the Lord tells me what it will be, I'll, I'll let you guys know. Uh, we'll go bury some in Jerusalem or something, collect when we get back. But, you know, during the tribulation, the disasters and plagues that we're studying right now, they are going to be absolutely devastating to the world. And it'll create such a monumental global crisis that the people will literally embrace anything. Just make it go away. And anyone who promises to give them, as the New Testament calls, peace and safety, right? And that's how the Antichrist rises to power is through peace and safety. And then what happens? So you have he rises up by peace. He'll destroy many in Daniel 8. Uh, Then the red horse rides in. There's lots of wars. He probably stops those. After the wars, the famines and hyperinflation set in globally. It's not a local geographical thing. This is around the globe that this will be happening. And looking at those examples after the last hundred years, it's hard in our age to relate with what would that be like to live through. But I think you can get a kind of a good perspective when you look backwards and see what did people live through that went through that. But they will, they will literally go to anything that will give them stability at that point. So they will just be looking for peace and safety And that's why in the New Testament, the Lord says, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. So it will be an absolutely devastating time in humanity. And a lot of people conclude a one-world currency by the mark of the beast, right? That the world will move to some type of digital one-world currency. You hear this a lot today, especially with the onset of cryptocurrencies and transactions happening at the speed of light just instantly between us and the other side of the world. But it's important not to add or take away from God's word. You know, the Bible does not talk about a one-world currency. It talks about something you need to make a transaction. And there is a little bit of a difference. And so in Revelation 13, this is where a lot of people get that idea. Go back, Austin. You jumped the gun. Okay, in Revelation 13, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now, again, everything that the enemy does is a counterfeit. And so this goes all the way back to the Passover. To receive the Passover, they were marked on the right hand or their forehead, on their head. And so it's it's a false counterfeit mark that you are saved, right, by the false Christ, the Antichrist, but he's going to make all that are, look, look what it says, rich and poor, small and great, rich and poor, 
free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so what is implemented, the only thing we know from the Bible is that what is implemented is a requirement to make a transaction. So what is that transaction? What is it going to be? Is it going to be in a currency, a new one world digital currency? It very well could be. I'm not saying it's not, but just don't jump to the conclusion that it is. It may be that you can't make a transaction in dollars unless you have the mark, and people in Europe can't make it in euros unless they have the mark. We don't know. Uh, my guess is that's probably not the case just because the Antichrist will want to glorify himself. And when you study ancient cultures, a lot of times the dictator wanted to glorify himself by putting himself on the money. And that's, that's where how the world would glorify a leader. And so that could be a hearken to a one world currency. But just be careful not to draw conclusions of that. So what we see with the black horse is hyperinflation. So you have these wars, and out of the wars comes hyperinflation, which is funny because I didn't say this in the slides earlier, but a lot of those hyperinflation scenarios we looked at over the last 100 years came after a war. And so you have wars and then hyperinflation, which leads to famine. It's not due to weather patterns. It's not due to global warming or the inability to grow food or rising sea levels, nothing like that. It's due to, in this case, biblically, it's due to hyperinflation, basically their money being worthless. So we just have to keep between the ditches there. Okay, if you do not know Jesus and you want to make sure you have a way home, it's very simple. You know, if you're in this room and you don't know the Lord, please come see one of us afterwards come talk to us outside. Send us an email if you're online watching and you need Jesus, please write us. We, we would love to hear from you. We've got people watching all over the world now from Europe to South America to Mexico, Australia. It's really, really cool what the Lord is doing through New City Church. And so if you don't know Jesus, it's very simple. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it's important that you do that now. You know, if you have loved ones, family members that don't know the Lord, do not let them believe the lie that, well, if things get bad, then I'll just put my trust in him. You don't want to wait until then. Nobody wants to go through what we are unpacking here. And I would not wish it on my worst enemy if I had one. I just, I wouldn't. I would not wish it on anyone. I wouldn't wish it on any of my family members, anyone I grew up with. They need to get inside the ark now before God closes the door, just like he did in Noah's day. Okay, Noah preached for 120 years, and it's amazing after all of that, he was preaching that something was going to happen that had never happened in the history of the world. And yet it was truth. Something was going to happen that had never happened before, and only eight in the entire planet believed it and got saved. Only eight. And when you go through the genealogies and the lifespans, it probably, there was probably about two to three billion people on the earth during that time. So this was not a little village of people in, in and around Israel somewhere. This was a global populace that denied Jesus. And when they got in, what happened? God shut the door. It was on his timing. And when the rapture of the church happens, it's going to be on his timing. And you want to get as many people in that ark before God shuts the door as you can because... 
Otherwise, it's going to be a very hard way to the Lord. And we want to make sure we, our friends and loved ones have that one-way ticket before the wars and the famines consume the earth. You know, he wants to welcome you to your forever place. When I really started studying this, it amazed me how Jesus has a yearning to bring us home. He longs for it. But in his love and his patience, he's waiting for it. You know, it's kind of like you're so excited to go on that vacation, but you just have to wait till August. You know, just wait. The trip is booked, but we're not there yet. And you're looking forward to it. And I think if we, as we go through this book, towards the end of the book, when you see the place he is preparing for you, you will be so excited about it. You know, a lot of us don't have a perspective on it because we've never been. You know, how, how could you be so excited to go on a vacation somewhere you've never been? You've kind of heard about it, you've read about it, you've heard some things, but you don't really know what it's going to be like. And what he has prepared for the last 2,000 years is going to blow away any place you could visit here on earth. And so I cannot wait to get there. I've, I've been homesick my whole life, but as long as he tarries, then we'll get as many people in the ark as we can. So I'm, just, I'm imploring you, if you're watching this, take your place right now in the army of Christ before he comes back. When he comes back in Revelation 19, we that are in the church get a white horse with him. And we'll study that in Revelation 19. It's a gift from the Father to you that you get for the entire millennium reign, millennial reign. It's your gift. And we're going to study that in Revelation 19. But you want to make sure you get that gift. And your people, your friends, your loved ones, your family members get to be a part of that gift. He's going to come back just as sure as he came back the first time. He's going to come back. And Hosea 5.15, right, is the prerequisite. It's the promise of his return. I go and, rep- and return to my place, okay, until they acknowledge their offense and their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. He's talking to the Jewish people. So he went and returned. He's going to come back when they petition his return, and that's what happens in Revelation 19. So with that, I'll close us in prayer, and thank you guys. Lord, we just thank you so much for this study. Thank you, God, that we have been preserved and protected here within the United States. Lord, I thank you that there are not many places on earth where we can gather together and congregate to study the word of God without the threat of arrest or persecution or endangerment to our families. God, I thank you that we are able to gather together freely and to study your word and to congregate and to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as Hebrews 10 declares. So thank you, God, for that. And Lord, we do not take it lightly. We thank you for that privilege. And Lord, I just pray a special blessing upon us as we go through this study of your word, as we unpack the Lord's sealed indictment and his repurchase or his gathering up of what he rightfully paid for on the cross, which is the earth and his domain over it. God, we thank you that before he goes to war, he's going to bring his ambassadors home. And that's where we are, ambassadors of the king. And so, God, I pray a special blessing upon all the moms here today. Thank you for their sacrifice. Thank you for their selflessness. Thank you, God, for all that they pour into their children and their families and their households. Just be with us as we leave this place and let us have a relaxing, wonderful day celebrating the pillars in our households, the women that you have blessed us with. 
in this church. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.